Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the pleasure of welcoming Dave Livermore to the show today. He is a social scientist and thought leader devoted to the topic of cultural intelligence and global leadership. He's a founder of the Cultural Intelligence Center in East Lansing, Michigan, and a research fellow at Nanyang Technology University in Singapore. Dave spent 20 years in leadership positions with a variety of nonprofit organizations around the world and taught in numerous universities. He's a frequent speaker and advisor to leaders in Fortune 500, nonprofits, and governments, and has worked in more than 100 countries. But he has a new book out called Digital, Diverse, and Divided, How to Talk to Racists, Compete with Robots, and Overcome Polarization. What a title. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Tiffany. All right. We are going to start off this show with uh, the infamous bullish and bearish. Bullish is your for it. Bearish is your against it. Are you ready? Ready. Okay. The first one, colonizing the moon, bullish or bearish? Bearish. Okay. Well, I get mixed. Like I usually pick Mars, but I picked the moon today. So, all right. The next one. I'm uh, glad you're not making me back these up, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's a quick bullish or bearish, right? No, no hard, no hard questions and no wrong answer. All right. The next one is virtual reality for diversity training. Oh, bullish, but. Okay. All right. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Okay. All right. And then the third one, a little more fun, especially since your subtitle has compete with robots in it. Robot Olympics. Oh, bullish. Bring it uh, on. Yeah. I think that would be totally cool to watch. You know, it's kind of like the robot games when you have those, that TV show, right? Where they have to build the robot and do stuff. But I mean like running and jumping yeah. and yeah, really get into how far we've come, uh, come with robots. Absolutely. Right? All right. Well, let's dig in. And then let's compete with them, right? I mean, yeah, well, I think we'd win for a while. I think I think we're good on some of the, especially running. I know you're a runner, right? So right. Um, I think we'll win on the running for a bit, but I think we're they're not far behind. Yeah. Endurance. That's where they're going to kill me. <laughs> Pretty much. Me as well. I can run about 20 yards and then I'm done. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's start with the title of the book because you know, a lot of times I have people on, right? I just read the title, but your title is, I'm going to say it again, digital, diverse, and divided. And then how to talk to racists, compete with robots and overcome polarization. Wow. I sound like a fun guy to have coffee with. huh? <laughs> you said it. I did it. You said it. Okay. So let talk me through the title. Yeah. So the, and the reason I, I just said that is I'm an optimist at heart. And in some ways that title doesn't feel that way. It's kind of like eh, in your face, but you know, where I got talked into it is it's pretty descriptive of the world we're in the digital diverse and divided. Um, and then the subtitle is, but we're not stuck there. We, we can overcome this. So yeah, I would say that the primary title, it's just, we are in a digital world. We are in a diverse world. And at the moment, it feels like no matter what the issue, we're divided on it. And then you sort of you know, sort of combine racist, robot, right. and polarization. Right. Okay, let's go you to the know, subtitle. <laughs> marketing keywords, right? But, but, but seriously, I mean, I would say that the very human innovation that we have to deal with racism and polarization is also where we have a leg up on robots. So 
Yeah. I would say that's where that kind of falls apart, right? It's the human aspect of everything we do in work and in our personal lives. But, you know, I've heard you say that polarization is the number one issue facing our world today. And, 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 you know, let's, let's keep it on sort of the business side of it. Uh, Otherwise we get into a whole nother sort of conversation, but, and, and how that kind of cultural intelligence um, helps companies kind of figure out their way through that. Yeah, exactly. So the, the polarization to your point might be, you know, just different ideas of how we're going to get to the end point, the objective, or it might be ethical practices of how you deal with um, overseas counterparts, et cetera. And frankly, and I know you don't want to go there fully, but even the political polarization is seeping increasingly into the workplace. Like what is our role as a company on reproductive rights, et cetera. So yeah, the, I think all too often, people like myself in the diversity space have been too guilty of just making the business case for diversity and get more diverse people and you'll be more innovative. And the people who are actually inside of the companies trying to do that are like bull, like we, we got more diversity and now we have all out mutiny taking place or increased frustration and gridlock. So that's, that's where the cultural intelligence piece comes in is of course, I'm an advocate for diversity, but we can't just bring in the diversity and the diverse perspectives without actually having the skills to know how to manage it. Yeah. And I think people also, I've had a lot of people on the show have feelings and thoughts and opinions and approaches to diversity. And I often hear, you know, the obvious, like how many men, how many women, you know, how many are, you know, of a certain race or from a certain location but I rarely hear people sort of dig in and delve into diversity of thought, like, right. right? And and that's part of it as well, right? Because that diversity of thought is kind of what polarizes and, and disconnects us, right? Because I think one way, you think another way. It doesn't matter actually like what race we are or where we're from. I, we just have different ways of thinking. Can I share a quick story? Of course. So I, I was working with a I think I can say Coca-Cola number of years ago, and they were bringing their most senior women together from around the world. So for a guy like me with the work I do, you know, this is kind of a dream engagement. You've got passports from all over the world, but they had taken one of the surveys that we do that measure their different thinking on a variety of values of direct, indirect communication, you know, punctuality, those kinds of things. And they were almost identical on all of them. And I'm like, what's going on here? You have people from all over the world who on the outside look very different, but inside we're very much the same. And, you know, I said it to them and they're just looking at me like, duh, like we, we wouldn't be in these positions if we didn't all think like the guys upstairs do, et cetera. And so it was an interesting thought for me to the very point that you're making is you could use one metric of diversity and say, whoa, look at what they're doing. Like the, they're the complexion of diversity they're the Benetton ad, et cetera, the United Nations. But then when you got beneath the skin, it was like, uh, actually, there wasn't a whole lot of diversity of thought that existed behind it. They've since corrected that, I think. But yeah, I think the, the diverse understandings can sometimes be far more polarizing than, you know, two different genders interacting together. Yeah. The, the downside of that lack of diversity of thought is sort of group think. Exactly. Right. This is the way we do it. And so that's the way we're going to keep doing it. And I'm not willing to bend on that because that's what I know. And the other part of it is that kind of overemphasis on the differences, like also 
creates even greater division. So it's like, it has to be part of the culture in the core, I'm guessing. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to get me into trouble here at some point. I'm guessing you don't care. Um, but, but that that's where I'm a bit of a dissident voice in the diversity circles. And I mean, big surprise as a white straight guy, you know, but, but I would say, I mean, of course, I do think visible diversity is really, really different, but sometimes we emphasize it so much that it's perpetuating the divides and we've just created a new kind of other group. So I think you nailed it. It's how do we, how do we come together around a shared organizational culture and then thrive on the different identities, whether that's thought, whether it's gender, whether it's race, et cetera. Yeah. I, I, I have learned, uh, especially working where I work, right. I, I work at Salesforce. We have a very unique leadership and the way that we run and how we sort of approach things. But I'd say for us, it has a lot to do with the opportunity, mm-hmm. like providing the opportunity to a broader group, right? Providing the opportunity for ideas to come from anywhere in the organization, opportunity for people to move up, that it's more about the opportunity. And if you look around the room and you see very similarities or you know sameness, or you see the same kind of thought, it, it to me, it is a it is the negative side of you're not allowing for that opportunity because you can't tell me the pool all looks the same, right? Or the thought is all the same. Then you're not allowing for the opportunity of somebody who doesn't agree with your point of view, right? The diversity of thought or someone who doesn't look like you because... So I I feel like to me, it has so much to do with opportunity. Mm, I like that. Do Do you see that getting better in tech world as a whole? Well, I can say the conversation is far more often than it was a decade ago. And so if we're having the conversation, it means we're going in the right direction, but talk and no action goes nowhere, right? So we definitely have a lot of talk and we don't have a lot of action, but we just, once again, from our perspective, we actually share those numbers, those diversity numbers that we, you know, and so we're as transparent as we can be. And is it as good as we want it? Absolutely not. But we're talking about it and trying to put that wood behind the arrow. But I was, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they're in the uh, entertainment industry and uh, I'm in Los Angeles, which, you know, kind of the capital of entertainment and the, the place that they were going to be filming was not in Los Angeles. And the, um, the community there is, looks very diverse. And so they were looking for talent in sort of post-production, right? The backside of it, like editing and all that. They couldn't find talent because they had not had the opportunity to work in post-production for two decades or, you know, a long period of time. So there's no, in the African-American community, there wasn't a lot that had a lot of tenure. And so it was people who now had the opportunity, but didn't have the skills or the expertise or the talent or the capability. So then do you say, well, they don't have the talent. So now we're going to go back to what we know. Or do you say, hold on a second, like we need to invest so that they have an opportunity um, to succeed. And it was this really rich conversation over dinner, right? Which I'm not going to get much further into, but it was interesting that I was like, well, of course it should be about the opportunity and you need to absolutely let them stay in those roles because it's important. <laughs> yeah. And it's also systemic. So my, one of my daughters went to USC's film school. So in your own neighborhood, and she often talked about interacting with students of color from different backgrounds, either African-Americans or a lot of Asian immigrants who might be the rare individuals from their background in the film school, but in part saying, I was never even socialized to think that this could be an opportunity for me. Exactly. So, you know, then it's, 
Okay, it's digital. We can work from anywhere, which the conversation is now we can have a more broad uh, work group that we can go and talent that we can go and, and tap into. And then you end up saying, okay, but then what? The only talent ends up looking like all the rest of the talent. So have you really like opened up the pool? And so that's why I kind of, I lean into that word opportunity, right? It's just making sure that existing employees have opportunity for advancement. Employees who want to work there have opportunity to work there or ideas can come from multiple places. And if, and if you feel like the opportunity isn't fair, then that's where I think there's, there's room for improvement. Yeah. And that's where, despite my debunking some of the mainstream in the diversity work, I think a lot of good work has been done on the equitable opportunities of saying that we need different structures to allow opportunities for groups for whom they haven't had a place at the table in the past. Well, so let's pivot a little bit and th- you know, thank you for all that. I, you know, it's, it's, I love having this conversation because it's also my way of learning more in different positions and different approaches. And it helps me almost adjust my thinking, right? That's, that's the whole purpose of this podcast, but you know, I want to shift a little bit to kind of this new world of work we're working in, you know, it's highly digital. Um, you know, how do we keep these connections with people in a positive way, you know, as we more work, uh, more collaboratively, but more importantly, we may not all be in the same office anymore. Yeah. And that's, that's where the digital title of my book, um, really tries to bring this to the forefront of saying we're in a whole new frontier, A, because as you just mentioned, suddenly now it's not unusual that I'm working with peers spread all over the world. Even if you're a little company, you may have source talent, but also, I mean, we know that there's a very different kind of water cooler conversation that takes place when you're in person. And I'm afraid like, you know, far be it for me to try and defend all the the leaders and executives, but in part, like we've been bashing the execs of like, well, they want everyone back in the office. What's wrong with them? But have we really given them the skills to say you have to manage very differently when you have a workforce that's entirely remote? So quick example that comes to mind of what you're saying, like when we were right on the cusp of the George Floyd murder, I talked to a number of friends of color who talked about what it was to suddenly get on the Zoom call the day after and just kind of chit-chatting about the weekend or whatever they were going to do. And I'm like, I'm still like trying to process this trauma. But then on the other hand, individuals who look like me, a white guy going, well, is it right for me to just say, how do you feel about this? Like that feels stereotypical too. So yeah, I think I think we're we're all still in new terrain and you know the the cultural intelligence work originally when I was doing it it was more classically for a business person traveling from the US to China and suddenly now today it's like this may be as much about how you're jumping on a Zoom call with seven different countries all at the same time. What do you think people get wrong with that? Mm. Well, that's a great question. The first thought that comes to mind is just trying to replicate what we do in person. So, you know, initially we were all, because we were all under lockdown or whatever, we were entertained by the, let's do virtual happy hour. But then it started to be like, okay, really? It's like, now I have to sit on Zoom to sip my cocktail as well. So I think, I mean, I've seen this a lot in the education space where, you know, faculty just pivot from an in-person course and dump the exact same content and approach to online. So I, I think one thing is what we're trying to do it well, or trying to do it the same. The other piece to me is that, you know, it's it's part of my whole like notion of this cultural intelligence is we're we're fearful 
of the real conversations. And so we just kind of dance around it. And I mean, you're in the tech space, you know this world much better than me, but the base camps approach was to shut down all conversation about sensitive issues. And we know what happened, right? You know, the next day, 30% of their workforce resigned. So I think the other thing we get wrong is we think overcoming polarization means we just don't talk about those issues at work and we're being bombarded with them. While we're on a Zoom call, I'm getting a new tweet about what just happened in the last 30 seconds. Right, right. And I think, you know, I, I feel like I could just talk about my own personal journey. Like I was raised in Hawaii and I was the minority from a from a race perspective, hmm. but I was also, I had things because of what, you know, my parents were a banker and a teacher. So they were like sort of middle class and, you know, I had opportunities and all of those things. So when I came to the mainland, it was a very interesting adjustment for me because uh-huh. I, I didn't actually, I, I experienced race very differently than someone who was raised in the mainland. Like, and so when it, everything started to happen kind of right after George Floyd, we started having all these conversations. Um, I really realized how much I didn't know, like how to have uh-huh. that conversation, you know, how to even bring it up you know, generationally, it was very different when I was a kid. We said very different things, which I would never say today because I understand, you know, the the impact that that has. And so I feel like I'm better for all these conversations we've had, but I still struggle to figure out what's the right time and the right place to bring something up and not to be insensitive or to, you know, make it feel like I checked the box and I asked that question, you know, so I feel like I'm still on this journey of this ever learning and every day it's it's something new i mean having done my due diligence on you i'm not surprised that you're you know really working to be on the lifelong journey and i mean kudos to you we need more who just have that posture of i might get it wrong i guess the nudge i would give to people like you and me is but don't don't not have the conversation because we might get it wrong you know, that's too often what happens. Yeah. And I think people know if I, you know, I, obviously I go to a trusted circle, like not someone I don't know, because exactly. then they'd be like, you know, they don't know my intention, right? They don't know what's my agenda, but somebody who I know and I, and I approach them with a really honest question. I get these really rich conversations. You know, we, we, we just had a very large event in San Francisco called Dreamforce. And I was sitting next to somebody whom I've known for years. And I had a conversation about he's Sikh and I don't know much about it. So I'm like, I hope you don't mind, but like, we're sitting next to each other for this hour long dinner. Like, I'm totally curious. I know nothing. I know very little. I love that. And it was an awesome conversation. And someone would tell you, you just committed like cultural suicide. <laughs> and I'm like, go for it. You know? And yeah. There might be the occasional person who's like, I was really forward and abrupt of you. But, but he trusted me enough and we had established that? a friendship enough. We don't work at the same company. You didn't stop your Uber driver and ask no, that, right? I did there not. A I did not. But now I know. So now someone I don't know, I understand the traditions. And, and, and the example actually was because we did an event together about a year ago. No, sorry. I forget about COVID. A year before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So like three and a half years ago. Um <laughs> And, you know, I have written a book like you did and, and they were handing out the book. So I was signing the book, but a majority, 65, 70% of the audience had come in internationally. So they were not from the U S and a good half of that percent was from India, parts of India. And okay. so we, they were taking pictures, you know, so I'd sign the book and then they'd take a picture. Well, many of them were traditional 
And so as I stood there with them, could I not put my hand on their shoulder or my yeah. arm around their back? And so it was more out of just even going, hold on a second, like something as right. simple as that, as that would be, had been very disrespectful and I wanted to be respectful. So that's why I started the conversation. Cause like, I wanted to understand. So when I'm in that situation again, or when I travel to India or when I travel somewhere else that I know culturally what is appropriate and not appropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was more for that reason that I asked the question. Um, but if you weren't even thinking about it and you're listening to this and you're like, wow, I never even thought of that. I take a picture with my team and someone from my team is very traditional in whatever that is. You have to be respectful of that, but you can't be if you don't know it. And if you don't know it, it's because exactly. you didn't ask it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, then it's really the message is you just don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, it, it sounds like you handled it well, even in the moment with the signing of the books and taking pictures. But even if you hadn't, then I think a key finding of ours in the cultural intelligence piece is that we learn from those mistakes, use them as a tutor so that to your point next time, I'm like, oh, not going to do that again, or at least we'll not assume that it's appropriate to, you know, give a bear hug to the person who comes up and thanks me for the talk. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's these little things, right? It's these little things. And this is kind of that human connection that digital sometimes removes and you, people might not turn their cameras on. So you don't actually know certain things. And, you know, I, I just think it's a, it's, I worry, you know, look, I've been in tech almost 30 years. Um, and, and I worry sometimes that we try to replace that human engagement so much so that it gets us even more divided. Right. And it, and it creates, you know, this unnecessary polarization between two humans who are just trying to do their job. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your listeners know this research well, but there's all kinds of data that says if you can post an anonymous comment, you're much more likely to be malicious, you know, and, and not thoughtful of the other human being. But if you're actually, first of all, if your name's attached, then your photo, and more importantly, if you're in person, it's a whole lot more difficult for most of us to be a total jerk rather than to, you know, kind of seek toward mutual understanding. Yeah. And I can tell you having my name and picture associated with Twitter, I have not tweeted things I've wanted to say. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, probably not really a good thing to say, but mostly about the ridiculous. Like that was just ridiculous. Like that's, you know, more on that side than saying something that was, you know, disrespectful or, or, or right. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, this, this went by so fast. I feel like we just got started. So let, let our listeners know, you know, how they can keep in touch with you. And, and before you do that though, I'd love for you to sort of give the two or three things that you believe the reason you wrote the book, that people will get out of reading uh, digital diverse and divided. Yeah. I, I think that most of us aren't happy with the polarized state that we're living in at work, in our extended families, et cetera. And so what I would say is, Hey, the, the extreme fringe end who are screaming, you're an idiot, just let them go on their way. <laughs> but what I hope that the book and my work does is to give people tools to the kind of the kind of thing that you just did with your seat colleague to, to kind of give handles around how do you do that. So things like when somebody says something that you really disagree with, using a simple question like, hey, would, would you be open to a different perspective on that? And most people will say, sure, if they don't, then okay no need for us to carry on a discussion about it. So I think it's just helping people see that this, this isn't 
our polarized state isn't where we have to live for forever, that we as human beings can, can interact and, and overcome it. And then simultaneously with that, that, that our differences actually are an incredible catalyst for innovation, a topic that I know you have a lot of expertise in. And so not seeing the, the polarized views as necessarily all negative, to your point earlier on, diversity of thought can actually lead us to more innovative outcomes if, if we know how to yeah, and if you are a leader, a manager, a small business owner, and you don't think that there is diverse and divided thoughts, and if you don't think there is polarization, if you don't think digital is going to impact your business, I would say, what would I say? What would I say, Dave? You retire. <laughs> you, <laughs> Go said to Hawaii and... <laughs> you said it, not me. Yeah, it would yeah. just be, I'm not sure what you've been paying attention to, but... If you are sort of willing to go on this journey, I think that Dave's put out just an amazing book. Go pick it up, you know, follow his work. And again, Dave, thank you so much for spending time with us here on the What's Next podcast. Thanks, Tiffany. Really enjoyed it.